Let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1 will be in verses 15 through 23 this morning and this afternoon. Don't worry, we're not going to cover all this in one sermon. Uh, Well, it's one sermon, just split in half. Ephesians chapter 1. As we've already covered a lot of ground in this chapter, we've seen something very exalted, something very profound. Paul has just uttered an exalted offering of praise to the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. It's one of the most uplifting, heavenly pieces of, uh, large pieces of text in the New Testament, probably. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, every blessing through his, his Spirit, in the heavenly places. And that began a long Greek sentence, or we could look at it as a long paragraph tightly bound together, blessing God for what he has done for us in Christ. But Paul knows that simply stating these wonderful things, even in such high praise, just just saying it won't necessarily get the Ephesian believers to really see it. Saying it even in such a grand way won't necessarily get believers to really see them these things for themselves. If a Christian's heart, his inner person, does not have adequate light, he can be staring at the most precious remedy for his soul without recognizing what's really there. And that's what Paul is going to indicate by Moving on to say how he's praying for these believers in Ephesus. Let me use a mundane illustration from our own family life. And I wonder if you've experienced, I'm sure you've experienced something you could compare to this. It's nighttime. In our case, uh, we have our fourth child, yet another baby, uh, at this point still sleeping in our bedroom. And so sometimes parents want to uh, do their best to be the ultimate ninja, the ultimate quiet, for unseen force in that room when that baby is asleep, and so you don't turn on the lights. But the baby's here. In our bedroom, there, there's uh, also a sink in the bedroom, attached bath, and there's a medicine cabinet area there. Well, I've experienced um, the uh, yeah, I've experienced the experience of going in there at night, and I'm needing something from the medicine cabinet. But I I am so afraid if I turn on a light, that baby's going to wake up. So, have you found yourself doing something like this before, sorting through a medicine cabinet in the dark? And you you may experience great frustration because you know it's right there. But you can't see it. You can't see what you're looking at. Maybe you see you see just a little bit of outline of something, but that doesn't help you. You can't see the labels. The medicine you need 
Maybe you need some Tylenol. It's right there in front of you. You can't see it. You know you're looking at something in the dark, but it's dark. You can't see it. Similarly for our souls, uh, complete spiritual blindness is what people outside of Christ have. Uh, They're completely in the dark. But even believers can have dim eyesight, spiritually speaking, at times. Uh, We do often slip back into a condition where we don't see as clearly with our spiritual eyes. And we don't see what's right in front of us that God has already given us for our souls. Do you know what you're seeing when you look at the scriptures and what God says he's already given you in Christ? That's what this sermon is about. Do you know what you're seeing? What you're looking at or trying to look at? So Paul prays for God to give the light of his Holy Spirit that these believers might see clearly the things he's just described and that they might know what they are seeing. They need to know what they are seeing so they can better apply it to their souls. Now, this, interestingly, is yet another... uh, This whole section, verses 15 through the end of the chapter, verse 23... It is another long Greek sentence, 169 words. So again, it's all, the point is, it's all bound together in one tight unit of thought. It's all connected very closely together as we move through it. But listen to what Paul says he is, is happening in his prayers for these Ephesian believers. This isn't the only place in Ephesians where he will talk like this. In chapter 3, he will share yet another side of his prayers for them. But this is the first time he does this in Ephesians. Let's read verses 15 through 23 together. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Zooming back out, having read it, what's the big idea? It's this. Only by God's Spirit can the saints see and know their privilege and power. Only by God's Spirit can the saints see and know their privilege and power. First of all, verses 15 through 17, as we see what Paul is saying his prayer is for these people, his constant prayer. Um, 
He says it's a constant prayer for the saints to know God by his spirit. Before he talks about what they need to know, he talks about whom they need to know and and the only way they can know him. It's a constant prayer for the saints to know God personally by his spirit. Constant prayer. Uh, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Constant prayer. Remember the afternoon sermon last week from 1 Thessalonians? Always rejoice, always pray, always give thanks. This isn't Paul's main point. Look at my example and follow it. But it is a side point. It always is. Paul does say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So Paul is an example for us here. Later in Ephesians, he will tell them, in Ephesians 6, that besides taking the whole armor of God to themselves, they must be praying at all times in the Spirit. Ephesians 6.18, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. We find an example besides Paul himself, um, over in Colossians 4.12, of someone else doing this, uh, it seems like a, probably a minister of the gospel to the, the people in Colossae and Laodicea. Paul says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So, before we get into the meat of this, this is what we ought to be doing. This ought to be natural for us. Not that we don't have to work at it. It will be a hard work. But this ought to be um, constant for us. Praying for the saints. That they will know God. And that they'll know what they have in God. That's one of the greatest things we could ever pray for people. It'll meet their deepest needs. But in that context, constant prayer for the saints to know God by his spirit. Uh, Paul reports on his prayers of thanks because of the saints' faith and love. Verses 15 through 16. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Remember, Paul had had a large part in the the beginnings of this church in Ephesus, but he's been gone for several years. Now he is chained to a guard in a house in Rome, waiting his day in court, basically. But as Paul himself sits there in that condition, he rejoices in what God is doing in this church where he'd previously ministered. He can take joy... And how God is prospering those far away because they're in the same body of Christ. God has already been at work in the lives of his people. And so it's only right for Paul to thank him for this, even while he's asking for greater things in their lives. That should also remind us that uh, it shouldn't be like we, we are either giving thanks for certain believers or... We're asking for their increased sanctification. We should do both at the same time. No matter who the believers are, we should always be thanking God for them 
and asking that they will advance further in the faith at the same time. Because that's what we that's true of every believer. There's always something to give thanks for if it's a believer. There's always something to ask, uh, some way to ask for their further growth if they're a believer. That's how our prayer lives should be for each other. Thanks and supplication. Both are always appropriate. Then verse 17, these are prayers for God the Father to grant them wisdom and revelation by his Spirit. Verse 17, what's, remembering you in my prayers, what's his request now in his prayers? Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, meaning the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in a certain context, uh, in the knowledge of him, in knowing him, by knowing him. He may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation by, by knowing him, the Father. Now, this sort of language may, if we're not used to it in Scripture, may strike us as odd or confusing. These are already believers. Paul just said in the last breath, essentially, earlier in the chapter, he just said, these believers, when they believed, they were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And he is the guarantee, the deposit, the pledge, until God redeems them as his own in the age to come. They have the Holy Spirit, so why does Paul say, I'm praying that the Father will give you, as I'm interpreting it here, the Holy Spirit, who can give you wisdom and revelation? Well, um, he's, what he's really asking here is that the Spirit they already possess, as Clinton Arnold puts it, will grant them deeper wisdom and revelation in knowing God better. Um, Paul often states things in one sense as, as already being ours in Christ and in another sense as what we need from the Lord even now. Um, this is one case where we have the Holy Spirit, but we need the Holy Spirit given in the sense of his operations. We need his work given to us on a daily basis. Similarly, if we're believers, does Christ dwell in our hearts through faith? Yeah, it's not your question. Yes. <laughs> if we're believers, Christ already dwells in our hearts by faith, right? So why does Paul in Ephesians 3 say, pray for this to be an increasing reality? Well, he's talking about progressive sanctification, the outworking of it in our lives. God's ongoing work in the lives of his children. He's, this is another one of, another place where he's saying what he's praying for them. Ephesians 3.14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, sound familiar, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He's already there. Yes, but there's a sense in which Christ needs to be more at home in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of God, the love of Christ, excuse me, that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
Um, Similar example, Jesus told those who were already God's children, he told God's children to pray that God would give them the Holy Spirit. Luke 11. Uh, Not meaning they didn't already experience the Spirit's regenerating, sanctifying work in their lives, but he simply means this in the sense of receiving the Spirit's aid in specific situations and with greater effects. Luke 11, verse 11 through 13. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent, or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The context seems clear that Jesus is not even talking about some some transitional thing in redemptive history, some one-time gift of the Holy Spirit to these men. He's speaking uh, in terms of the Father giving the Spirit in the form of help to believers, to his children. So, back back to the main idea here. These are prayers for God the Father to grant these believers wisdom and revelation by his Spirit. They need, they need to increase in wisdom so they can apply what they think they know of biblical truth. So it will, will really matter more in their lives. Wisdom is the, the skill of understanding and applying your knowledge, right? And revelation, even as believers, we are utterly dependent on the Spirit of God to make sure our eyes are open wide to spiritual truth. We need it to be revealed to us. We're utterly dependent on the Spirit's revelation. So we really get it. And all this happens in the context of knowing God, in the knowledge of Him. And of course, that word for knowledge there, epignosis, it certainly implies not just as Harry Eppertrude says, not just academic, but relational knowledge. Knowledge of a person rather than facts. He says, Christianity is not only a matter of what we know, though that is of fundamental importance, he says, but of whom we know, which is equally significant. You can know in detail every bit of systematic theology and not know God. That's why you need the Holy Spirit. Now, you can, the Spirit is not going to bless your laziness if you say, okay, I'm going to set aside the truth of God's word and just get the, the personal knowledge of God by osmosis. Just let it flow through me without facts, without truth. No, the Spirit breathed out the scriptures for a reason. The the scripture is the sword of the spirit, the word of God, as Ephesians says. But the point is, we can think we, we intellectually understand what we're looking at, but we haven't experientially understood. It hasn't changed us as it ought to change us. If we really believed it, if we really understood We need to know God personally. There has to be Christian experience.
Now, um, Clinton Arnold says in his commentary, it's a good observation, the content of Paul's prayer here is similar to the remarks he made about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to the Corinthians, when he explained to them that the human spirit is unable to know God. Only the Spirit of God can reveal, that same word for revelation, apocalypto, only the Spirit of God can reveal knowledge, which is wisdom. 1 Corinthians 2, 6-16. He goes on, behind both of these passages, Ephesians and 1 Corinthians, behind both of these passages stands the influence of the Messianic passage in Isaiah eleven two. Speaking of the Messiah, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. He ends by saying the spirit who came upon the Messiah is the same spirit who now rests upon his people and provides knowledge, wisdom and power. It's a good connection to make. Even the sinless Jesus, the man Christ Jesus, needed the anointing of the Holy Spirit for his work, his mission from God. He needed the spirit of wisdom and revelation. How much more do we sinners need that? We need the spirit to know God. Well, we get to verses 18 through 23, the second point of the text. And this really covers the rest of the text, even what we covered this afternoon. It's a big, it's a big expanded point. But, but the main point, the main second point here is a constant prayer for the saints to know what they have from God. We started with a constant prayer for the saints to know God himself by his spirit. And that flows into the second point, a constant prayer for the saints to know what they have from God. Verses 18 through 23. First of all, beginning of verse 18, um, the first thing here is not what they're going to know, but how they're able to know it. Again, the the work of the Spirit, knowing because their hearts see better. And now you know again why I went went into the illustration and things I did at the beginning. Um, if we're going to know what we have from God, it'll because if we're going to know that, it'll be because our hearts, spiritually speaking, see better. <laughs> Knowing because our, their hearts see better, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Enlightened is a good translation. Uh, the, the light has come on for the eyes of your heart to see. And when, um, when the scripture speaks of the heart, and, and when the Old Testament and, and the Jews even of Paul's day spoke of the heart, they weren't only speaking of the emotions. That was very much included. Uh, it wasn't just emotions without thinking. It wasn't, people didn't say, um, it, you're either thinking with your head or your heart. No, the head was part of the heart as they were as they were thinking of it. The heart was the place of the seat, the place, the center of your intellectual and spiritual life. It's your inner person that includes what you think and what you feel. All of it together. 
So Clinton Arnold says, Paul is here praying that God will provide profound insight into his own person and will for these believers. But it's going to happen when the eyes of your heart, of your inner person, are enlightened. Again, if this doesn't happen, if the Holy Spirit does not turn the light on for us, we won't really understand what the big deal is about all that Paul has said so far in Ephesians chapter 1. These lofty doctrines of election, predestination, redemption, revelation of God's will in Christ, inheritance, being God's inheritance, having an inheritance in Christ, being secure in the Holy Spirit and preserved to the day of redemption. It won't seem to make much difference in our everyday life. We won't see the connections if the lights aren't on. So we need to say, as the psalmist did, Psalm 119, verse 18, to God, Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law, out of your word. Now, when God opens your eyes, what will you see and know? First, well, this is the second subpoint here, in verse 18, um, knowing what you have from God, what kind of knowledge is that? Well, it's, it's knowing the hope of being called by God. Knowing the hope attached to God's call on you. Knowing the hope of being called by God. He says that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Calling is one of those pregnant words in the New Testament. Words full of meaning and connections. Harry F. Richard says, Calling forms a basic part of Paul's understanding of salvation. Christians are called to belong to Jesus Christ, Romans 1.6. Called into the fellowship of Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.9. Called to be saints, holy ones, Romans 1.7. Called to be holy, 1 Corinthians 1.2. Called with a holy calling, 2 Timothy 1.9. Called to freedom, Galatians 5.1 and 13. Called into one body, Colossians 3.15. And called to be worthy of the calling to which they have been called, Ephesians 4.1-2. So, being called by God, the way Paul usually uses it here, um, it's the idea that God has effectually, effectively summoned us to himself through the gospel. He's grabbed a hold of us, drawn us to himself through a summons, through a message, the gospel. And through that, he has effectively brought us to himself. So now that we are called to him, we belong to him. That being the case... Of course, that's connected to what we've preached about already in Ephesians. Uh, you understand if you've been called by God, what the hope is to which you've been called. Paul Gardner says, The modern English use of the word hope is very different from its use in Scripture. Nowadays, when we talk of hope, we imagine that something may happen in the future, but then it might not. It is my hope that it will be sunny tomorrow. I know, um, sorry, if it is my hope that it will be sunny tomorrow, I know when living in England that this may be a forlorn hope. He could have said Portland. <laughs> uh, now, living in Atlanta in June, July, and August, I can hope for a cool day, but that is certainly a forlorn hope. 
In Scripture, when this word is used in connection with the gospel and with the coming of Christ, it always carries certainty with it. The Christian's hope in this sense is his or her expectation. In Christ, our hope is certain, for he is the faithful one who fulfills his promises. If your hope is anchored in Christ, there's no uncertainty about that. It's, it's, it's a certain expectation, an anchor for the soul. Or Harry Uppertrude says it much more simply, hope is that assurance of eternal life which comes from God's call. You put all the things together from Paul's blessing of God earlier in the chapter, and that's our hope, especially as we apply it to our future. If we are God's treasured possession, if we've been predestined from before the world began to be his adopted sons through Jesus Christ, if we've been elect, chosen to be holy and blameless before him in the end, that's our hope. That's where we're going. That changes everything about our life and what we expect to happen. And even the worst things that can happen to us in this life are all part of the good plan for that hope to be realized. Hope. Do you know the hope of being called by God? Or do you walk around or sit around as as if you were hopeless? As a constantly, and I, I know depression is real even for Christians, but as a constantly depressed, hopeless person without peace, a Christian who who acts like he has nothing to live for. Do you see the hope? Do you, do you see so that you know what your hope is in Christ? Now, Paul, Paul says this briefly, and he's actually building, as we'll see, to really focus on the power that is ours in, in Christ. Uh, he does that even, by the way, he starts out with brief statements, and then his statements get bigger and bigger till he get, really gets to the climax. But next, it's not just knowing the hope of being called by God. It's, it's knowing the glory of being God's heritage. Again, of being God's treasured possession, his inheritance. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Of God's glorious inheritance in us or among us, saints. Do you understand that? Paul Gardner again. Paul is praying that Christians may understand that they as God's people, the saints drawn from Jews and Gentiles alike, are hugely privileged. They are part of that which was always God's intention from before the foundation of the earth, namely a people who would be holy and blameless unto him. This is his inheritance, and God himself finds it an inheritance of glory. <coughs> Do you value it like God values it? And look, this isn't, this isn't all about you personally. It certainly is about you, but not you alone. Do you value the church of Jesus Christ, the whole body of the saints, as God values it, as he treasures it? Do you treasure God's people like God treasures them and like he treasures you?
That's part of this. If you really get this. There's nothing greater to experience in the future than having the eternal love of God in the fellowship of God's people and together being God's special treasure. Of course, uh, we, we, we talked more about this in the last sermon about God's inheritance in the saints. I'll just mention again, this language is taken from how God spoke of his old covenant people Israel and now it's applied to new covenant Israel, the church. Deuteronomy 32, 8-9, speaking of uh, God taking the people of Israel as his own. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage, or, or the Lord's allotted inheritance. And we read last week in Ephesians 1, 11 through 14, I'll read this from the Legacy Standard Bible. In him we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, to the end that we who first have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. If we really appreciate the value God places on us as his people, we're going to see that it's a high calling, a high privilege, and we're going to have grateful humility for that. And we're not going to go chasing after all sorts of other things that the Lord says we shouldn't uh, covet anyway. We're going to be impressed. We're, We're going to be properly impressed with what we have in God alone. And we're going to give our lives to that. Clinton Arnold again. The point here is that Paul wants his readers to know how deeply God values and cherishes them. They are God's incredibly valuable and glorious inheritance. And as an earthly king values treasuries full of silver and gold, Paul uses that sort of language here, the riches of his inheritance. As an earthly king values treasuries full of silver and gold, God values his people as his wealth and honor. And this bears itself out throughout the rest of Ephesians. What does God put on display to show his glory to the universe? Even to the angelic powers. Does he open his heavenly treasures and say, look at all this gold I've got stacked up in here. Look at all this loot I got from my enemies. Not literally, but in a way he does do that. He shows the church, look at this plunder I have from my enemy. Look at these people who one day will be holy and blameless before me, who used to be utterly corrupt. Look at these people who now love me and love each other. 
They're going to shine like the sun forever and ever. With the glory that I'm going to bestow on them. When he wants to show off as it is right for God to do to show his glory. He says, look at my people. Look at my son and in him, look at my people. Remember, before we move on, the big idea of this text. Only by God's spirit can the saints see and know their privilege and power. We've been reminded of the privilege. But now the emphasis, as I hinted before, the emphasis for Paul falls on the power. God's power at work in us and for us. Because of who we are to God, who he's made us to himself, there's, there, there's no power, no capability of God's which is not unleashed on our behalf. So, verses 19 through 23, knowing the greatness of God's power toward them. And what is the immeasurable greatness don't read over that lightly. What is the, the greatness that cannot be measured, that cannot be fathomed? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Paul is getting more detailed now. And, and the whole rest of the text, which we'll cover in the afternoon, um, goes to great length. Just, just to start to help us get a glimpse of what, this, what kind of power this is. As it's seen in Christ. What's the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? But let's not miss the big point. At, even at, at this juncture where, where we are. Paul Gardner says this. Why do we find it so hard to imagine that we can be better Christians? Perhaps it's often because we take our eyes off the ball. We think becoming better Christians or growing to be mature Christians depends on us. We may have come to faith by grace, but now it is down to us. Isn't that our default so often? This is not antinomianism. This is not saying, therefore, don't try. But, it, but you need, as a Christian, to constantly bring yourself back to that recognition. The power is not mine. God hasn't thrown me out there on my own to do my best. I'll see you in heaven. Back to what Paul Gardner is writing here. What Paul says here is altogether different. All growth requires energy of some sort, but for this power, Christian lives depend on the life-giving might of God that is at work within them. This is, of course, brought to us by God's Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit guarantees the inheritance and brings us wisdom, revelation, and enlightenment. Thus, the wonderful truth is that God himself takes us through this life, helping us grow and helping us through all the difficulties and temptations we face. He is determined to receive the glorious riches of his inheritance. God's not going to miss out on what he has planned for his own glory in our lives. So he's going to pull out all the stops, as they say. He's going to use all his power, his almighty power, the immeasurable greatness of his power to get it done. 
And struggle is real in the Christian life. But the fact that we are struggling in the Christian life does not mean God is not working for us or that he, he's got it on half power for us. It means that's God's all-wise plan to, by his almighty power, get us safe to glory in the end. Even our struggles are that way because God knows they are the best way. This afternoon, we will see how Paul cannot describe God's power toward us without describing that power in terms of Christ's resurrection and enthronement. And so in a way, it's like, um, it may look like this afternoon like a totally different topic, but it's not for Paul. He says we need to understand what God has already done by his power for Christ to understand the power that's at work in us. That'll be this afternoon. But already, I think there's some applications for believers here from part one of our sermon. I'm just picking out three. And you may be shocked by how early we're done with the the first sermon. But use the break well, because we'll have some deep plowing to do in the second sermon, second part of the sermon. But don't check out yet. We do have three very important applications already. Number one, as we look at this whole first chapter of Ephesians, this, this should be clear if you really think about it. Number one, elevated doctrine, high lofty doctrine, elevated doctrine should elevate your prayers. If you're content to stay in the books and rejoice that you have figured out all this grand doctrine and it doesn't drive you to grand prayer, something's very wrong. The Apostle Paul, of all people, he goes from elevated praise for elevated doctrine it's true, and but then he takes it to a great prayer for God's people. I've been quoting a lot of commentators today. Um, I quote Paul Gardner again. Thanking God for a people exhibiting their Christian faith and praying for a deepening of their knowledge of God is a prayer that Christians should readily imitate as they pray for Christian friends. Can I tell, could I, hypothetically, could I, if I heard your prayers day in and day out, out loud, even the prayers you pray silently, if I heard your prayers day in and day out, could I tell the depth of your doctrine that you know? Maybe, but often we may have supposedly learned a lot that we haven't incorporated into our prayers. Uh, now, I, I should be able to tell the doctrine that's sunk in, that you've really understood in the way we've been talking about today, by how you pray. <laughs> and what's more, prayer is a major way that the Spirit works so that so that we work through doctrine and, be, and understand it better as we're praying according to it, right? It's one thing to say, 
everything, absolutely everything in my life is God's goodness to me in Christ. It's another thing to say that when your child dies. When you have cancer. Something like that. And you're praying. Maybe broken phrases, but you're praying. Lord, this is what you say in your word. You say that all this was planned from before the world began. And it was for my good and your glory. I don't see I don't see it at work here, Lord. And, but you told me to trust you even when I don't see it. And you work through this in prayer. And it becomes more a part of you. The truth takes deeper root in you. As you pray with the help of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit softens your heart to the truth and you see, oh, I didn't realize it would make this big a difference in my life. Elevated doctrine should elevate your prayers. By the way, it's a very practical way to to make sure that's happening better in your life. Pray through the scriptures. If you read through the scriptures, go back and pray with that wording or similar wording applied to your own circumstance. There, there are great books out there to, if you really need you know, um, someone to train you in, in that sort of habit. Um, they'll take you through prayers like that, but you can do this on your own. You don't just read the scripture and say, that's nice, and move on with your day. You, you then pray about that concept to God. Number two, another application to believers. You need spiritual vision before spiritual duties. Let me say that again. You need spiritual vision before spiritual duties. Listen to what S.M. Baugh says here about this this section. He says in chapter 1, verses 18 through 19, Paul explains that the knowledge he prays his audience will gain... This knowledge centers on the truths of God's redemptive accomplishment on their behalf rather than on their duties. They have evidenced the reality of their faith in love toward the saints, verse 16, in fulfillment of the royal law. Paul will not withhold any exhortation to holy living as the epistle continues, meaning there are commands coming. (laughs) But he knows that sustained and greater holiness in love arises out of deeper knowledge of the gospel of God's lavish gifts of hope, redemption, and powerful salvation, rather than endlessly bludgeoning Christians with demands for fulfilling the law's duties. End of quote. Before Paul ever gets to his direct commands for these believers, a to-do list, if you want to look at it that way, he says what you need more as a foundation is you need to understand the gospel better. You need to understand better all its implications. You need to understand God personally. Before you obey your father, you need to know your father. Don't get that out of order. This is also why you need to read the Bible for all it reveals. 
not just for a tip of the day or for your next task to accomplish. People read the Bible different ways. When you read your Bible on your own, as I trust you do, especially in our day when it's so readily available, why are you reading your Bible today? What are you looking for? Are you looking for the next thing to do that will make me happy and, and keep God happy with me? Or is your vision bigger than that? Are you looking for everything that's simply there that you can see about your God? Read the Bible for everything it's revealing, not just, not just the tip of the day, not just your next thing to do. You need to simply gaze at the glory of the Lord as it shines from his word. That will transform you. But a checklist approach to scripture won't do that. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 15, Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, in the, in the Jewish synagogue he means, whenever Moses is read, that, that scripture the, in the Old Testament, Whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, we believers, with unveiled face, in context he's talking about the New Covenant as well, we New Covenant believers, with unveiled face, we can really see now, beholding the glory of the Lord, as we look at the Scriptures, Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Even before you find out some specific commands, and yes, I, I hope as a basis for all this you understand the basic law of God, but before you find your tip of the day... You just need to get a better understanding of God. That will automatically change you if it's real, if you belong to him. So that second point was that you need spiritual vision before spiritual duties. And number three, finally, in a sense, as a believer, you don't need more from God. You need to see what you have. You don't need more from God. You need to see what you have. You've been called by the glorious Father to be his treasured possession. You have every blessing of the Holy Spirit in Christ. You have it all. You have the highest privilege and power you can imagine. In the heavenly places, in Christ. This is by, We walk by faith, not by sight. But God promises us it's ours. It's at our disposal. But you need the eyes of faith to see it clearly and use it properly. This is why Paul in so many other contexts, whether it's writing to the Galatians against the Judaizers, trying to divert them to being circumcised and keep the law in addition to Christ, or whether Paul is talking to the church at Colossae about these people who say, well, you haven't had this special spiritual experience yet with the angels or uh, and they also threw in some law-keeping and so on. But Christ is good, but you need this, this to advance further in your spiritual life. Paul always points them back to what they already have in Christ. You have been utterly 
filled, made full in Christ, he says. Go back to him. You don't need more from God. You need to see what you have. If you don't see what you have, you will think you need things that you don't need and that will actually hurt you. You will go after false cures in your spiritual walk if you don't grasp what you already have in Christ. If you do grasp it, if you do see it, at the end of your Christian walk, you will still be using the same tools, much more skilled at it by God's grace, you'll still be using the same basic stuff that was given to you when you first came to Christ. And that'll be enough. But do you see what you have? Does it mean anything to you? And to back way up, to end this, I don't want to make any tender-hearted, tender-conscienced believer doubt their, the, the reality of their salvation. That's not who I'm aiming at. But if you're sitting there bored and thinking, yeah, I don't see the point of any of this. Well, maybe you're just in the dark completely. Maybe God hasn't opened your eyes to the gospel. You need to consider that seriously. In any case, you need to repent and come to Christ. That's always the answer. But if you don't see why any of this matters, you need to go back to the basics. You're a sinner who needs Jesus to save you from your sins, to make you right with God, to take you from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. You need Jesus Christ to even see what you need. May God open your eyes to that. Let's pray together. Father, please use these inadequate words of mine to communicate your fully sufficient word in a powerful way for each person here. Thank you for these people's kind patience and attention and putting themselves under your word Sunday after Sunday. Help all of us to see the significance of what we have from you even today. Open the eyes of our heart by your Holy Spirit who can give us wisdom and revelation by knowing you. Help us to see you for who you are better. Not just our preconceived notions of you, but who you really reveal yourself to be. And then show us what you've given us in Christ. If you do that for us, Lord, we will be infinitely forever happy and holy in the end. So we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.